Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 00062 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James, broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands, which of course is on Wurundjeri country, the Kulin Nations. Always pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging, and also recognise that their land was unceded and remains so, and that this will always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Well, doesn't this just suck? <laughs> Us Melburnians and, and those living in the Shire of Mitchell are in lockdown for six weeks, starting 11.59 tomorrow night. Although I, personally, will be starting at 11.57 because I'm different like that. Seems that there's um, always crap news on Tuesdays, which uh, totally ruins my vibe and no doubt ruins yours as well. And to be frank, if I was a betting man, um, and who knows, I may well be after the end of this, I'd be tipping that uh, I'll be broadcasting from Radio City Docklands probably for the rest of the year, which is um, disappointing because I don't get to see the friendly and beautiful faces of uh, my colleagues at Triple R World HQ. But, you know, I am usually a pessimist, so these things should be taken with a grain of salt. And it's best actually to keep listening to people like, uh, you know, physician and journalist Dr Norman Schwann on all um, all matters pandemic and to the to the health authorities, Brett Sutton and um, and co. So maybe if you're in another state, you're, you're tuning in via rrr.org.au, maybe consider maybe instigating an adopt the Malburnian scheme, you know, um, something along the lines of this is Terry. And he's only just 47 years old. Without your support, Terry won't be able to afford the long neck he needs every weeknight to survive. Now, of course, I'm being a little bit flippant, but what else can you do? You've got to be, um, you've got to have a bit of a laugh in situations like this. So let's be grateful that we're not in hard lockdown like uh, people in the housing commission flats in Flemington, Kensington, and North Melbourne. So just a word on those hard lockdowns, um, you know. I think by now, I think it's pretty obvious that the way those hard lockdowns were actually instigated was um, clumsy at best. There should have been health workers, social workers, drug, drug and alcohol workers uh, going in there, if not before, but clearly alongside police officers. I can imagine how terrifying it would have been to be in those towers and then seeing armies of police turn up without any context or any sort of clear direction as to what was actually going on and then being informed that you're going to be locked into your very, very small flat in most cases for at least five days, perhaps 14. The letter from the Deputy Chief Health Officer that uh, was circulated to residents was cold and brutal. It was a legal requirement for them to actually do that, but um, the communication around getting the, the health messages, the, the, the whys and why nots was clumsy at best and the scrambling to get services into those commission estates was 
in my view, handled very, very poorly. And, you know, if you are the, the police, you know, there's no need to have your lights flashing all day and all night either, you know, um, staring at your window in one of those places um, at flashing lights all the time. I don't think that's going to be too good for people's mental health. And, you know, I've got experience, well, my family's got experience. My mum ended up in the uh, Melrose um, Canning Street Commission Towers when she was uh, 15. I have uncles and aunties that have come through there and used the, the, the public good that is public housing to ultimately build a, a better and independent life for themselves. So I think one of the issues that needs to be discussed, and we won't be discussing it tonight, but we'll, we will discuss it at some point, is past this lockdown phase, is that we need advert a discussion about the complete inadequacy of some of the state's public housing stock. Those public housing estates that are in lockdown now have been there since the uh, late 1960s, instigated by Henry Bolt, Jeff Kennett's, I guess, I guess he's Jeff Kennett's um, hero. Um, but they have remained relatively unchanged since then. And there are pros and cons to those towers, but when it comes to things like global pandemics, uh, there, is not, there is nothing but cons. That, cons. There, are, there are common areas, it's high density, um, uh, crowded flats, and we must do better in the future to make sure that people that need a leg up, people that are vulnerable, people that are strong but vulnerable, have better public housing in the future. And we need to dramatically increase the stock of public housing that we have. Uh, I believe that there are 52,000 applications for public housing in the state of Victoria as I speak to you this evening. So there are people that um, uh, are vulnerable that aren't even in those housing commission flats and need the support of the state. And I, as a Victorian taxpayer, and I'm sure you as a Victorian taxpayer or otherwise, would be more than happy to help that, help people on the wrong end of the social justice arc in this state. And I guess, you know, another, another, another point is that we need to realise that this pandemic doesn't affect us all equally. And there's been no clearer or stark reminder of that than the last few days. And um, my sympathy and my love goes out to the people that are stuck in those towers uh, we are with you. I hope now that uh, the, the rest of Melbourne is now back in stage three lockdowns is that they can be taken out of complete lockdown and um, allowed out for at least some fresh air or exercise like the rest of us can do. Um, I think it's been very heartwarming to see the amount of support that Melburnians and people from all walks of life have provided to various food centres and uh, drop-off points to make sure that people have the food and provisions that they desperately need, and I hope that they're getting the same support from social workers and drug and alcohol workers, and they're getting treated humanely by the authorities that are there. And I think, you know, there's a lot of fingers that we can point, but we also need to realise that for the people that are trying to get on top of this within the Housing Commission flats, um, it's not an easy job for them either. So we need to spare a thought for them too. What it also shows, of course, is though, is that in terms of our resource and dealing with this pandemic, we're almost at, at the limit in terms of contact tracing and preventative matters. If this thing continues to get out of control, uh, we're not going to be able to contact trace anymore and our hospitals will start filling up. So over the next six weeks, 
uh, I urge you on behalf of the Aboriginal community to do exactly what we're being ordered to do, maintain social distancing, only go out for four reasons, and basically don't be a dick. So organisations continue to scramble to support uh, those in the estates. Um, so shortly I'll be speaking with Jill Gallagher AO. She's back in her role as the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Controlled Health Organisation, VATCHO. And VATCHO has been very proactive in producing resources to deal with the return to stage three restriction, restrictions and hard lockdowns in the Housing Commission flats. And these lockdowns obviously affect numerous Aboriginal individuals and families. So it's really important that they have the information they need to make sure that they can access and acquire help if and when they need it. So despite the lockdowns, people on those estates still need our support, probably now, more so now than ever. So that'll be the show tonight. It's just going to be Jill. I've uh, pre-warned her that we'll be having um, an, an extended yarn about all things. There's so many things to talk about at the moment. So this is the mission on the, the 7th of July, 2000 and bloody 20. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in and um, stick around. It should be a good show. If you want to get in contact with me, uh, you can get in contact with me via my Twitter handle at Mr. DT James. This is the mission on 102.7 Triple R FM. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. And to our first and only guest this evening, but um, always uh, a mighty guest to, to have, Jill Gallagher AO is a Gundi Jamara woman from Western Australia. No, oh, sorry, Western Australia, from Western Victoria. COVID brain slipping in already. Um, from uh, Western Victoria, she um, uh, was raised... A fair bit on uh, Gunai Kurnai land, but she is a highly respected, as we know, Aboriginal leader who has dedicated her life to advocating for the Victorian Aboriginal community. She spent uh, 20 years advancing Aboriginal health and wellbeing through her work, and in particular leading the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, VATCHO. And uh, she's been on the show before, of course, in her capacity as Victorian Treaty Advancement Commissioner. But now that job is done and dusted, she thought she'd take a break and uh, head an Aboriginal health organisation during a time of global pandemic, just for a bit of a rest. Um, she's a friend of the show and she is on the line now. Jill Gallagher, welcome back to the mission. Daniel James, thank you for inviting me. Ah, always, always an open invitation for you, Jill. Um, now, listen, I haven't actually um, prepared any questions here because this is just going to be a yarn between you and I. And if others want to listen, then that, that's okay. But I, I will start with an opening question. How are you and yours holding up in this time of uh, pandemic? Um, look, it's been um, in, in your uh, opening remarks, uh, you said I've come back to Vacho for a rest. Uh, <laughs> um, I haven't rested. Uh, it's been quite hectic, Daniel, um, heading up a peak body. Uh, trying to mobilise our sector uh, in this space and make sure we minimise the impacts of COVID on the Victorian Aboriginal communities. And VATCHO um, and its members have done a uh, awesome job um, and uh, we're still continuing to combat COVID-19 uh, and it's a struggle. I think one of the amazing things about the... Um the uh, Aboriginal community-controlled health sector is, is is it was seemingly ready-made for for something like this to occur in terms of being able to mobilise so quickly and organise screening, 
um, testing, other health provisions, get public health messages out. Um, I think the 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 community controlled health sector is really shone and shown the way for for a large part of the rest of the health system. What do you reckon? Oh, I I had no doubt about that. I mean, um, me witnessing um, um, the innovative ideas that Aboriginal organisations have come up with in the very early days of the pandemic, um, you know, um, PPE uh, was a mm. big issue for all health service providers um, and uh, a lot of our services also suffered with the same lack of uh, protective gear. But I've seen some, some awesome, um, innovative uh, services come up with dealing with that and I think it's been fantastic. One of our, Daniel, just one of our service, smaller services, in Victoria, Aboriginal organisations, mm-hmm. um, they live in a in, in a uh, in an area in Victoria where there's no no public transport. So right. um, the uh, small Aboriginal health service they actually became very innovative and did testing door to door. Yeah, right. So like uh, the rest the of the state, aren't just caught up on that. Yeah, 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 exactly, Daniel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> too deadly, too deadly. Now, you had a, um, yeah. uh, Bacho had a, had a very busy weekend once the, 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 the hard lockdowns on the um, Commission Housing Estates were, were announced. And so you, along with, I guess, a, um, an armada of other organisations, Bacho, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, of course, the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency, uh, Jira, the the, the women women's um, protection agency, and uh, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services, to mention a few, met with uh, the government on Sunday to actually walk work out what core supports we needed to support Aboriginal families and residents affected in those towers. Um, who did you meet with, and and what did you lay out for them? Well, well, basically, uh, Sunday, uh, yes, we met with via Zoom. That is, by the way, I'm, I'm, I have to add, um, we met with uh, government officials, um, Department of Justice, um, uh, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Depart- uh, Premier and Cabinet, uh, just to work out. You know, that's when Saturday uh, afternoon was when the uh, announcement that our Premier announced about the uh, lockdown of the uh, n- um, Nine Towers. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, uh, we have a lot of our own clients, whether it be VACA clients, the child care agency, or whether it be the legal service. Yep. Um, but we have a lot of our families that live in those um, high-rise flats and... Um, Complete lockdown, no pre-warning. There were a lot of concerns, a lot of issues. There's a lot of issues with, um, um, you know, and not just in our own communities, Daniel, but, yeah, spoke about where to from here, spoke about how can we mobilise our own services to do wraparound. At a time when there wasn't a lot of, um, what's the word, wasn't a lot of uh, detailed information as to what's actually happening yeah. Uh, on the ground um, in those uh, nine towers. 
Yeah, and I think um, you know probably the the the, the pertinent um, point to make right now is if there are people listening in those towers and they don't know it already, then the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service has a um, a call uh, a number that people can ring, and uh, VARS will actually help people that ring that number to uh, to link to the appropriate services. And I've got the number here; um, it's one eight hundred nine five nine five six three. So if you want to call, um, if you're an Aboriginal person or an Aboriginal family living in those towers at the moment and you want to try and work out what assistance is available to you, if you don't know already, then um, you can call 1-800-959-563 and they will link you to to the right services. Another thing you've um, done, Jill, is is you've actually put together a a very useful and very easy-to-read um, flyer that people can access if um, if they want to know uh, where to go and who to ring for, for various things. Yes, that, that was decided on Sunday. I mean, uh, on Sunday it was bringing all the agencies together to work out who's going to be doing what. We don't want to be falling over one another's feet. VARS put their hand up to take on a, a coordinating role um, that showed my team, uh, Caroline, she put her hand up to do to develop the flyer with everyone's uh, contact details and what's on offer. And um, and so we're, um, yeah, so it was really great to see how um, our community um, came together. Uh, and sometimes that's not easy, Daniel, when we all come together. <laughs> what do you, is this a bit uh, of post-traumatic stress disorder coming out, Jill? I think so. <laughs> uh, no, it was quite. It was quite. Um, it was quite amazing to to witness um, all these uh, individual leaders coming in and working the best way forward uh, that we can, uh, in a, especially in the towers, can get services to those towers. Yeah, and if if people um, want to access the information provided, and it's actually. Useful for informa- useful information for any Aboriginal person actually listening to this program now. Now that we're all um, pretty much in stage three lockdowns, you just go to um, to vache.org.au and uh, you'll find it there. Or you can go to the the, the Facebook website, which is facebook.com forward slash vacho, V-A-C-C-H-O. And it's got a whole raft of um, services and contact details for um, organisations that are there to help you, that are actually obligated to help you. So, uh, you know, I've got contact details for the uh, Aboriginal Housing Victoria, for the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services, as I said before, JIRA, um, Aboriginal Community Liaison Officer Program. Um, there's so much uh, available to support you if you are in lockdown or if you are struggling and you need services. Um, how worried are you now? And I guess it goes without saying now, Jill, that it now that we're in stage three and from from my point of view, it seems like we've almost lost this cat, you know, in terms of it being out of the bag. We've been, you know, holding it by the tail for so long, but it now seems that the community tra- transmission rates are very worrying. Um, how, how worried are you for, for, for mob across the state? Look, uh, I, I, well, I'm worried all the time. I mean, yeah. we're in a world pandemic, you know, even overseas, they haven't managed to. Um, what's the term everyone's using now? Um, uh, flatten the curve. Yeah. We started to flatten the curve, but uh, the curve is starting to happen again. So, 
Um, I am worried, but I had no doubt um, us as, 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 as human beings and us as uh, Aboriginal human beings, um, we're resilient. I mean, Daniel, we as Aboriginal people have survived colonisation. We can mm. survive the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, but we must, we must continue to be diligent. We must continue to continue the, uh, washing our hands, um, keeping our distance, no hugging, no kissing aunties and uncles and elders. Yep. We, you know, we still got to do all that, Daniel. We haven't, we haven't won this battle yet. No, we, we haven't, and I think it's you know really incumbent on our, all of us to do that for our own well-being and for the the well-being of our communities and our families, and it's also you know really important that we do that for for the sake of the people that are in hard lockdown now. Because if you think that that hard lockdown can't occur with with you or, or your family or your mob, uh, then maybe you're a little bit delusional because that hard lockdown can happen anywhere if things get really out of control. That is, that is so true. Uh, and if there's any of our mob in those nine towers that are listening to this, um, you know, I mean, we're also, we, we don't know where the uh, one you've got um, um, uh, internet, whether yeah. you, um, uh, you know, got some, whether you've got a tablet, or an iPad or whatever, Um but we can support with those sorts of things. You just need to make contact with the people who are actually coming to your doors and ask for that flyer. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's, um, a, it's an almost whatever it takes approach, isn't it? It really is. Exactly, whatever it takes. But um, hang in there is all I can say to everyone in those towers. Um, you know, it's a scary time for us, but um, uh, we'll get through this. Yeah, we're as tough as nails. If we could just shift focus now a little bit, Jill. Um, one of the things that uh, I've kind of been thinking about over the past 24 hours is the lockdown of the New South Wales border and the potential impact that that has on the social and emotional well-being of mobs along the Murray that potentially could be divided. Um, has there been any thought? with the discussions you've had across agencies and with government around the, 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 the mental health of, of those communities, or is that still something that's in progress? Well, that's something that's in progress, but when you look at the, um, um, the Victoria-New South Wales border all along the Murray there, the majority of infrastructure is on the Victorian side. Mm. Um, um, so it's the New South Wales people on the New South Wales side that um, that I feel a little bit for because what services are they going to access? Yeah. Um, Aubrey Redong is a little bit different. They have services on both sides uh, of the border, but in the other towns, the, the infrastructure is mainly on the Victorian side. Yeah, so we've got, we've got Neander in the on the. We've got Neander in Echuca, yeah. we've got um, Mungabarina on both yeah. sides in, in Albury, uh, we've got Robinvale Health Service in Robinvale, all the, with the Mildura Health exactly. Service, which is, which is in Hill, Mildura. Mildura. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's not our mob on this side of the river that I'm worried about, it's the New South Wales mob on the other side of the river 
that won't have access to infrastructure unless they unless what I would have done in but I mean I'm I'm not the expert here by the way, Daniel. Yeah. But what I would have done was basically say for the border town you can straddle both sides of the river. But but you can't. It's a it's it's a complete lockdown. Yeah, an absolute and complete lockdown, and, and it's worrying. And I think it's a discussion that needs to um, needs to be to be had sooner rather than later. Because um, not only is it a, is it a, a health emergency um, and a mental health emergency, but it could quickly become a justice issue as well. You know, as oh, as, very, as, very, very much so. Yeah. Um, well, I've well, I've got you. Um, last week, uh, Nacho alongside uh, the Indigenous, um, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Ken Wyatt, agreed to a path forward in terms of uh, new closing the gap targets, 16 new targets across five priority areas. Um, There isn't much meat on the bone in terms of the various governments, state and territory, in terms of actually committing real dollars or actually committing themselves in any terms of infrastructure or support for the 16 new, new targets. Um, what, what, are your, some, what are some of your insights on that? And are you optimistic that um, agreements can be, be reached both federally and, and state-wise? Um, Daniel, I'm quite confident that agreements will be reached. Um, uh, a lot of the Aboriginal people who've been involved uh, in developing uh, these targets and um, and a way forward for us. I have worked really hard for the past few years on the on this uh, draft agreement. Uh, hasn't been an easy task. Uh, mm. You know, you're talking about all states and territories, yeah. and you're talking about the Commonwealth government. Um, but the coalition of peaks uh, have done an awesome job to get us where we are. The next. I mean, it hasn't been signed off yet, but uh, we're not far from there. Um, but the next, um, I suppose, once the agreement is signed, uh, is then uh, negotiating um, uh, the funding to achieve the implementation of that agreement. Yeah, and, and in some respects, and it's, it's ridiculous to say this, of course, because the need is great and it's, um, it's there and it's not going to go away, but... It, the, the agreement couldn't have come at a worse time, given given the global pandemic and all the the different ways that health systems across the country are, are being stretched. Are you happy? Were you happy to see um, a justice target finally put in the um, the closing the gap movement? Oh, very much so. Um, I thought it was a great uh, achievement to get a justice target in there. Um, I think generally. Uh, a lot of the Aboriginal uh, jurisdictions who've been involved in this would like to see uh, more ambitious targets, but overall, it's a good start. Yeah, yeah, it has to start somewhere, and I think what yeah. we've we've recognised, despite many attempts over over ten years now with the with the closing the gap agenda, the statistics don't just they just speak for themselves, and um, there needs to be a fresh approach and putting that fresh approach in the hands of Aboriginal people, organisations and communities. Um, because as you know, Jill, um, better than me, if, if community don't own 
initiatives and projects, then they're doomed to failure. And I think that's what's happened with the, the first iteration of closing the gap. So um, do you think that's going to happen in terms of ownership? That's going to happen with uh, this new iteration of closing the gap? I definitely do think ownership is is is, um, is, is a big um, what's the word a big um, um, aspect of of uh, this new way of doing business now. But I think I I still I still you know I mean and I and I believe the the, the both state governments and the Commonwealth government uh, will come to the party with the uh, required resources, and it'll be all states contributing, including mm. the Commonwealth. But I don't think it's... It is how much they contribute, but it's, you know, it, it's not an overnight fix. No. Um, whatever resources uh, are negotiated here to implement the agreement, it needs to be ongoing, you know, uh, not not for the next three years or the next four years. It needs to be ongoing for the next twenty years. Do you think? Do you um, think? Do you think that governments finally get that? I remember. I remember when the first iteration of closing the gap came out, and it was like three year targets, five year targets. I, do you think that governments now get that this is actually something that needs to be put in place? generationally in terms of actually affecting outcomes here? Do you, are you confident they get that now? Look, um, I would like to think I'm confident that, that they get it, but I'm, I'm still sceptical. Um, I mean, the first um, iteration of the Closer Gap, um, uh, one of the uh, universities did some, um, um, what's the word, modelling yeah. uh, on uh, a couple of the targets. And, you know, at the rate that, that, that we were going and at the rate that the funding was being provided, um, we were going to close the gap, um, the life expectancy gap in 500 years' time. It was 495 <laughs> years' time, actually. Yeah, we just um, don't have that sort of so, time on our hands. Well, no, no, <laughs> we don't really. We, we would like to see, um, you know, my children and my grandchildren um, thrive under these targets. Yeah. Um, and the majority of the Aboriginal communities. So we do need uh, a long-term commitment. And one of the from one all of the governments. yeah, from all governments. That's the point. From all governments. And I think one of the things that came out in one of the early drafts of the, um, some of the targets was that uh, that justice gap, closing the gap in justice by twenty ninety three, which is seventy, you know. 76 years away, which is a life sentence in itself. And thankfully, that seems to have been, um, that seems to have been rectified. Um, and it's not often that we get AOs on the show, so I might as well ask a few more questions before I let this AO go. Um, Jill, you were, a, um, <laughs> you were a, um, a pertinent part of the development of the Uluru Statement. Um, what are your views on where that is at now and, and, and what are your views around where we are in terms of uh, constitutional recognition for First Nations people? Mm. Small mm. question, Daniel, I know. Daniel, I'm happy, yeah, I'm happy to tell you my views, but some people aren't going to like it, but, I, I mean, I'm not here to be liked either. Yeah, you're an um, AR and they're not, so what are they going to do? <laughs> um, look, I, I fully support constitutional reform. 
um, um, but simply because, I mean, the Uluru statement is, is such a, a minimal, minimal ask mm. from the first peoples of this continent uh, when we know that there's never been any uh, treaties um, in this country at all, ever, uh, except one, but that, that went haywire. Anyway, so <laughs> the Uluru Statement is talking about empowerment for us as the first peoples of this country. That's all it's doing. It's not saying we want all our lands back and we want to own everything and we, you know, uh, we want to send this country broke uh, and we don't want white fellas living here no more. It's not about that. It's mm. actually about say, acknowledging uh, the past and telling the truth. And it's about treaties, but it's also about empowerment, um, Daniel. I mean, we can if we're in Victoria, we're going down the road of treaties, and that's great because we have a government that is prepared to explore that. Yep. But if we have a change of government, that could stop. So we don't have empowerment. We've, we've got no added protection for any treaties that may come down the track. Um, and that's what that constitutional reform will do. It will protect agreements that are put in place. It will give us, as First Peoples of this country, a strong voice. So once we have a strong voice, then we can have um, um, true uh, uh, agreements or treaties, and then we can have truth-telling. So that sequencing is yeah. really vital. Yeah, I think that's that's an aspect of the Uluru Statement that hasn't been focused on enough, and that is that, that Makarata Commission, where we sit down as yeah. a nation and actually have a really truthful, honest discussion about what's taken place in, in, in this land. Um, yeah. And, Daniel, the other thing I wanted to say on that, if you just indulge me one more second. I am indulging you, um, and I'm happy to. Oh, awesome. Um, <laughs> is we currently have a process to look at a voice. That process, I think, is uh, insulting to First Peoples of this country. Because what it is, it's the government, the Commonwealth government saying, let's have a co-design. Let's sit down and co-design your representative body, Aboriginal people. Yeah. That's an insult to, and, and for us as Aboriginal people to accept that and not push back on it and say, no, we will design our voice like we did in Victoria there was no co-design process here in Victoria for the First Peoples Assembly. Yep. It was designed by Aboriginal communities, uh, and that's what we've got today. So having a co-design process for our voice at a national level is actually – and a co-design process for a, a government advisory committee – I think I think I think that's right. I think the other, you know, the, the the other insulting aspect of it in terms of, you know, trying to meet First Nations people um, halfway with with the Uluru statement. Well, it's not even halfway. Just like just do it. But uh, the other insulting aspect <laughs> is, is that they're actually, you know, looking to legislate the voice and not actually enshrine it in the constitution, which means like ATSIC, exactly. 
at any given time and any given side of politics that, uh, you know, feels that the voice is either an impediment or uh, unnecessary, through legislation, through the parliament, they can just do away with it like they did ATSIC, whereas if they enshrined it in the constitution, they would have to go to a referendum and get in a majority of votes in a majority of states to do that. Um, that makes a legislative voice very perilous. Exactly right. How many... Um, one of these days, someone should... And someone's probably already done it, Daniel, sit down and add it up. Uh, in the past 230 years, how many advisory committees have Aboriginal people have had in this country? Uh, more than there are stars in the st sky, Jill. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, I'm going to let you go, unless there's anything else you want to get off okay. your chest. No, look, that, that really helped me now. I have to go back and deal with COVID, getting all that off my chest. Thank you, David. <laughs> no worries. I'm here to help. Uh, Jill Gallagher, okay. AEO, Gundi Jamara, warrior, uh, fighter for her people, CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. Thank you so much for coming on this evening and sharing your wisdom. All good. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.